what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll put this out. So instead of the weekly assignment this week, and if, if you've done it already, I know some people have already already done it, you'll still get that credit for it. Uh, but instead of the normal weekly assignment to by Sunday, write, um, write your 250 words on what play you're doing for the, the drama assignment and uh, just some some notes on why you're doing that or what you plan to do with that. So that would be how you get the, the participation points this week. I'll, I'll put a, uh, there it is. I'll put a notice out for that so that everybody, um, send out an email to everyone for that or, or an, uh, uh, an update with regards to that. Um, if you've done the Nathan the Y stuff or are, have already written that, you'll still get points for that. So you could get two class particip participation points out of the 10 for this week. Um, yes. Okay, so we're up to 14 people. Um, it's still about eight people short, I think. So, but we're, we'll start up anyway, and hopefully, uh, hopefully some people will filter in as we get along because it's 10, 12 now. Um, Good. So today we're just going to go through Nathan the Wise. Uh, you know, we're just going to be discussing that, and that'll be that'll be the class today. So last time we left off, we had discussed the prologue of the play and some of the Enlightenment ideas embodied in that prologue. Prologue was not written by Lessing. However, I think that's generally the type of response people had was, and we could see this, the philosophical spirit must appear in their work, need no comment, the excellent brilliant spirit and tendency cannot be ascribed to any other cause, etc., etc. That is a, that's, I'm reading from the prologue. Uh, and what this, this person is seeing here is a play that is extending philosophy and the Enlightenment spirit, not so much being this great, um, this great work of art or something like that, right? In the way you'd see people uh, praising Shakespeare. So it seems like the intention of this play is is very different. So let's uh, let's keep going with that and let's start with the plot. So with this play here, what is what is generally the plot? And we'll start with with where are we and when are we? What location and at what time period are we in? Well, I know they're in like the Middle East, but I'm not sure what the time period was. But I know it was like a long time ago. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's the uh, right after the third. Uh, excuse me, the 13th, the Third Crusade. So it's a pause point in the Third Crusade, which is the, the 12th century. So I want to say like 11, 1190 or 1198, in the 1190s. Um, it's either right after the Crusade has wrapped up or it, it's a brief kind of ceasefire in the Crusade. Um, so good. So why are those things relevant? Why is a religious crusade and 
the, the Middle East. In this case, it's Jerusalem. They're in the city of Jerusalem. Why are those two factors necessary for a play like this? Um, well, because they had to have the knight in there, and, like, he was um, captured, I believe. So he, like, wouldn't be part of it without that. Um, and then the they were, like, really against, like, the Jewish people, and Nathan is Jewish. Mm-hmm. So that, like, causes conflict between the two. Okay. Yeah, so so in terms of the conflict, like, why is a, a knight there? You know, why why are we sending a knight there? Yes, you, you need a, a war to justify the sending of a knight, and especially a Templar, which they refer to... Um, do you, Does anybody remember how they refer to the Templars in this play? They're half one thing, half the other. Does anybody remember what those halves are? Okay, they're half warrior, half monk, or half knight, half monk. That that so they are um, part of a religious order, and the Templars historically were a, a knightly order um, deemed to protect the pathways for pilgrims to visit the Holy Land. So that was initially their uh, th- their mandate, even though the Templars expanded from there. Um, but okay, so we have we have the actual causal reasons why you need a religious war to either be going on or to have just stopped, um, and yeah, and you also need um, you need to be going on in the Middle East because that's where these religious wars were happening. That's where the, the religious conflict was in the the twelfth century. Um, thematically. How does the religious conflict and the setting of Jerusalem reflect the the themes of the play? Okay, so who is in Jerusalem? What is the the ruling structure in Jerusalem? Oh, okay. Go go ahead, Joe. June. I forgot what his name was, but he's like a, a Muslim uh, leader, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, Saladin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Saladin is ruling over Jerusalem, and he he's a Muslim leader. And he's won the crusade, and you know, spoiler, he he wins. The, you know, historically speaking, this is this is a historical figure. He he does win the third crusade. You know, this is the first crusade the the Christians lose, um, and they they start you know, they they set a trend for crusade losing after this. Um, but yeah, so he is a Muslim leader. He's just won the crusade, um, or he's just 
he's just thwarted the crusade and the crusade is carried out by um by whom what what group Mm-hmm. Exactly. The Christians. So the Christians have, have started this crusade, or um, regardless of who started it, there, there's this idea of the Christians are there in order, to, uh, in order to fight on behalf of their religion. The Muslims are there in order to fight on behalf of their religion. And we've now reached a ceasefire in which Saladin is on the throne of Jerusalem. He's ruling Jerusalem. There seems to be a compromise here. And there's another Christian ruler with some with some power. Does anybody remember that character? He's only in one scene. There's one scene in Act Four, and that's the Patriarch. Does anybody remember that character? Or was confused by that character, possibly. Okay, so th there's there's the patriarch, and the patriarch is in charge of Christians, seemingly in that area. And so there seems to be a, a somewhat of a negotiation where the patriarch has control over. Uh, Christian people. It's in, not entirely clear how much control, um, but at least vis-a-vis -vis the Bible practices, he has control. And then it seems that control over the Muslim people, as well as political control, has fallen to Saladin. Okay, so that that's the situation. We have uh, Jerusalem, which is the religious home of the Jewish people, the Muslim people, and the, the Christian people. Um, there is a war of conflict, a war of religion that has just either terminated or is on pause for the duration of this play. And we have, as our main character, a Catholic warrior, quite literally, um, who has been pardoned by a Muslim victor. And that, that's our, our situation here. So just getting more into the mechanics of the plot, why is the Templar pardoned? So Saladin, um, he collects, he uh, captures rather about, I think they say 20 Templars, and he executes all of them but the Templar of, of our play. Why does Saladin free this man? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Al-Assad, I think, is was his brother. I actually don't remember his brother's name, um, but he, he's not in the play. But yeah, he, uh, exactly. That is it. He looks like his brother, and so he pardons him. Okay. Um, and so that's, that's the idea going on here. What has happened um, to bring the knight Templar, the Knights Templar, the, let's just call him the Knight, the Knight, into conversation with Nathan. 
Right? So something happens at the beginning of this play which throws the, the knight's path into Nathan's path. And, and what is that? Save his adopted daughter. It does, exactly. Yeah. The knight saves the adopted daughter, Reka, uh, Nathan's adopted daughter, uh, from fire. The house is on fire, the knight is walking past, he runs in and, and saves her. Okay. Good. And and so what is who is Nathan? Nathan the Wise. We know he's, for example, he's Jewish. So we know he's Jewish, uh, which puts him kind of on the margins of these, these power dynamics that are going on. Um, he is not one of, he's, he's not conqueror or conquered. He's a, a third party right, because of his religion. Um, but, but who is he in terms of his position in society? Okay, so how, how do how about this? How do people feel about Nathan? When you read this play, what was your your feeling about Nathan generally? Your your kind of emotional response to the character? Um, it doesn't seem like other people particularly like him because he's Jewish, but he's rich, so they like tolerate him. Yeah, that's that's a big part of it, right? He he is a merchant. He's done well for himself. Therefore, you want him around. Um, and that's right. People don't like him because he's Jewish. Uh, he's not one of the, you know, the religions fighting for, for control. Obviously religious identity is very, very important to, to these people. And since Nathan falls outside of, of that, he is, he's kind of, a, you know, a, a villain to everyone, you know, not a major villain, but certainly he, there is no, there is no legal authority protecting him, right? There's kind of a legal authority that's looking out for the Muslim people. There's a legal authority in the form of the patriarch who's looking out for the Christian people, um, but none for Nathan. Okay. Um, and so the, it, this is further complicated because um, what is happening to, to Saladin? He's in a bit of a bind, we learn at the, the beginning of the play. So Saladin is uh, expecting 
a an injection of wealth from Egypt, which has not come in. So it's it's way behind. He doesn't know if it's going to come in. At the end of the play, it it does eventually make it there. It was just delayed, uh, and eventually Sal, uh, Saladin is flush again by the end of the play. But at the beginning, he is, you know, out of money. And so he's thinking of making Nathan his treasurer, which means that Nathan's basically will will be financing things in spite of Nathan's, you know, what Nathan wants. So we now have Nathan in the uh, in the center of this this conflict. Um, he's got the eyes of Saladin on him for his finances, and he has attracted his daughter anyway his adopted daughter has attracted the interest of the knight um and so that that's kind of the, the configuration of the plot and what ends up being what ends up being revealed there's another thing that gets how about this i'll say it this way there's another thing that gets nathan in trouble there's a revelation that gets nathan in trouble uh it, it gets him in trouble with the patriarch and what is that revelation Exactly. So she was a she born a Christian woman. The friar brought the baby to, to him, to Nathan, and he raised her as a Jew. This is considered a, a high crime by the patriarch. Um, and it looks like the, the knight accidentally reveals this to the patriarch, uh, who is the only... It seems like the patriarch is the, the one person in this play who doesn't seem to have redeeming values right redeeming characteristics rather right i mean part of it is he's only in one scene um while saladin is sort of able to uh to to soften and the the knight is able to soften um these these kind of people learn tolerance the, the patriarch doesn't but yeah so that this is a problem and this is a punishable by death crime um However, Nathan reveals, you know, he, he's never kept it secret. He's, he's you know, he knows uh, he he has done what was expected of him. He hasn't hid this. He's not trying to corrupt the youth or anything, anything like that. Um, but what ends up being revealed? Who does his adopted daughter, Reka, turn out to be? Um, it would be like Saladin's daughter. Yep. Well, she, uh, his his niece, right? His brothers, yeah. His his brothers' children. Um, so it turns out, in spite of their incredible attraction for each other, well, they're brother and sister. Um, you know, which is, which is sort of gross, but you know, whatever. Once they reveal that, they just stop talking about it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's like a Luke and Leia situation. Uh, but that's revealed, and it turns out that these people of these different kind of religious backgrounds are actually all a, a single family. And so that's that's the plot mechanism, and the plot mechanism obviously follows the message of the play. And while most plays, I would say, don't have messages, um, every man does, right? Every man will be the one exception up to this point that we've read that has a message, right? Which is, you know, 
worldly goods will hold you down, throw away all worldly goods, and you can have access to and, and embrace your good deeds. And through good deeds and faith, you can have access to heaven. Right? There's a, a clear message in every man that isn't, let's say, in As You Like It or King Lear. You can infer lessons from As You Like It and King Lear, like, you know, rule wisely, power corrupts, etc., etc. But Lear is interested in this, uh, in taking you into a story and having you invest in its characters. It's not interested in in instructing you on how power corrupts. It's, you know, this, it's not a lecture. Uh, I would say, or actually I'll ask you guys this. Do you think there is a distinct message that, that Lessing is going for? Or is it just something we're inferring from the plot? Okay. Um, does this play have a message in the same... How about I'll ask it this way. Is this play closer to every man in the way it treats its audience? Or is it closer to Shakespeare in the way it treats its audience? Okay, how about, is this play trying to teach a lesson or not? Um, I think like relating back to the whole religion thing, how they're all from the same family, but they're all different religions. I'd say that's like a pretty prominent lesson about how like you shouldn't, like there was one part of the play where um, Nathan goes off about how like, when you're born everyone's just born a man like not particularly like into a religion and i think mm. that's kind of like the message of the play okay good yeah I, and i think i i think the play is probably leaning towards instruction right and i, I think you're right that everybody's just sort of born um born without these kind of social constraints or the, these people are born without the social right they're, they're just born they're biological entities and then you're, you're sort of integrated into the social um and it seems like lessing using nathan as his his mouthpiece wants to hold that idea up to the light right um and so i think that it, that is a big part of this um what is the there, there's a little story a parable that Nathan tells in the third act. Did we cover this last time? I don't think we did. But there is a, a short parable that Nathan gives that speaks to what you're talking about, Christina. Uh, do, do you remember what that parable is? Um, I don't, actually. 
Okay. It, it's the parable of the rings. Does anybody remember that? Oh, is it the one where his dad, the, the rings are like passed down to like their favorite child? Um, but the father loved all of his sons equally, so he made like really good um, replicas of like the opal ring. Oh, and the ring is supposed to like give you favors from God. Mm-hmm. Um, that thing. Yeah. No. Exactly. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it is. Um. Uh, it's passed down from year to year. A father had three sons, and he loved them all equally. Um. And so he made two replicas. And the replicas look exactly like the the initial opal ring. And he mixed them up. He gave them to the sons. Nobody knows which ring is which. Which ring is the the real um, the real ring inherited from hoary tradition. Uh, and so they all all of them go forward, uh, not really knowing which one is is authentic and which one isn't. And what is that? parable meant to highlight So what are the three rings standing in for? Each each ring is a metaphor for what? Um, this is just a guess. Was it for like the religions, maybe? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. We have we have three religions in conflict. The the parable comes out of the, the reason why Nathan tells this parable is uh, Saladin invites him to his his palace. Uh, the idea being, you know, I want you to be treasurer. AKA I want all your money. And he asks Nathan a question that's supposed to trap Nathan, which is, um, you know, which religion is the best. And Nathan can't answer that question because if he says Judaism, he insults his, his Muslim ruler. If he says, um, Islam, then why is he Jewish? You know, you, you kind of, it looks like he's just caving. And so this story is a means of um, a means of dealing with a kind of a, a politically rhetorical difficulty. And Saladin appreciates it. After he tells him this, this parable, Saladin sort of understands Nathan's wisdom um, and develops consequently. So 
when Christina, we're, we're you know you're kind of giving your reading here of this idea of um, of humanity predating religion, right? That that personhood um, exists prior to or independent of the the traditions and customs into which the person is embedded. That that parable helps highlight, I think, that nature, right? Or, or that idea is that there is, um, that there's these kind of customs of old and these customs that we are, are part of and we're not entirely sure how they start or, or what their origin is. And even when we get to their origin, you know, this kind of division of the rings that, you know, making, um, making replicas of the opal rings and giving them out, um, we're not really sure if any of this is authentic, quote unquote authentic, because um, you know because it's it's an old ancient tradition, and its roots are very often lost, right? And so holding up the the idea of tradition itself to the light to see uh, to see what it is in itself, not Christianity or Islam or Judaism, but the idea of a tradition or a custom or a collection of customs, I guess that's what a tradition is, right? A collection of customs, um, to hold that up and to see that not in, in itself as bad. I don't think Nathan is saying we shouldn't be religious then, but I think what Nathan is saying is that, um, that these things are, are man-made, right? Ultimately man-made and, Therefore, they don't. We don't need to insist upon the essential truth of one or the other, even if there is an essential truth. Nobody needs to insist upon it because nobody's going to be able to figure it out. But that seems to be the the idea of the parable and how the parable fits in with with this work. Um, and what's interesting, what a lot of critics talk about this play. This play has was controversial in its day and then controversial in in our day, uh, even though the, the controversy is, you know, maybe 20, 30 years old now. Um, in its day, this play was banned initially because actually a lot of people thought it was too, um, it was too anti-Christian, that it was too harsh on Christianity. Uh, and not necessarily Catholicism, because it doesn't seem to be particular about about Catholicism. It's more of a general Christianity, but um, but yeah, it, it they thought it was too harsh towards the Christians. That the Christians between the three groups, the Christians uh, are seen in this play as probably the most ignorant. And I don't know if that's true. I think it's certainly true of the patriarch. The patriarch is the the character with the fewest redeeming characteristics, namely zero redeeming characteristics. Um, but in our day, a lot of critics have talked about Nathan's uh, Nathan's Jewish Jewish characteristics, um, his Jewishness, his religion, and how it's expressed in the play. Um, and has did anybody notice anything about? how his Jewish religion is expressed in the play, what characteristics of his Jewish religion are, are highlighted.
it's interesting because what, what a lot of critics say is that we don't really see anything, right? That Nathan is um, is sort of Jewish in name, and apparently he's practicing. I mean, he raises his, his daughter Jewish, presumably. But we really know nothing about this part of his life, this tradition. And so the play is is holding up the idea of tradition, um, but it's not really investigating any particular tradition. I, I mean, even we, we don't hear anything about the particulars of Judaism, the particulars of, of Islam. You have a little more with Christianity, um, which... I, you know, certainly makes sense as Lessing was a Christian, um, but even there, that's that's not. It, it's not an investigation of Christianity in any way, uh, and so a lot of the the critics of this play, who are you know, th this is a little older at this point, um, that their criticism was that this play isn't actually uh, looking at. Jewish people as Jews or or Islamic people as Muslims that they're, they're sort of titles by with by with which Lessing is making his point um, do you guys think that criticism is fair irrelevant not fair So, so let's actually get maybe maybe we could use some of the text to to help with this question. Um, so there is a point where the knight describes religion, and this is uh, page sixty-five in your your PDF. So it's sixty-five, excuse me, on the on the actual pages, not on the the PDF pages. I'm turning that. Oh, I I went too far. Give me one second. Okay, so the the knight is speaking with the friar, and the friar again is the the person Christian, um, obviously, but the the friar is the person who brought um, Reka, the daughter, to Nathan, and so here's the friar speaking, um, and yet a priest, whatever be his business, would scorn the advice of knights or gentlemen. The knight responds. For priests enjoy the privilege to be wrong, which we indeed are never jealous of. If twas nobody's business but my own, I should not want your patriarch. But there are many things in which I deem it safer to be wrong with good advice than to be right and not have asked any. Moreover, I begin to feel religion is party. 
However candid and impartial our professions and our turn of mind, we do unknowingly support our party. This being then the case, I fancied his best, and I am right. And then the friar responds, I can say nothing, for I do not understand you well. And then it says, And yet, but tis no decision, tis advice I want, not learning um, disquestioned, but pure advice. I thank you, friar, for your hint. Um, what need of patriarch be you? My patriarch, I want the Christian. The case is this. Okay, so this is especially what I want to highlight, the knight saying, Moreover, I begin to feel religion is party. However candid and impartial our professions and our turn of mind, we do unknowingly support our party. So let's close read that. What, what do you guys make of that? So how about this? What does that mean? Okay, um, so, so it's probably somewhere along the lines of, um, uh, n not exactly political party, but th the group to which we ascribe to, right, as opposed to, um, as opposed to merely a belief system. It's also the custom into which people participate and the the collective which people cite in order to represent them um i think that's the the realization that that the knight is having is you know it is that that religion seems to be party um which is important for somebody who is half monk half warrior 
just fought a crusade on behalf of, of his religion and, and almost died, probably should have been killed um, for, for his party, as he says. And so there's, again, this, this other understanding of um, not just, a, this isn't just a, a rationalism, but really an analysis of, of tradition itself. Um, okay, another thing, let, let's take a look at, uh, okay, take a look at some, another major question I had, um, would be, uh, things to think about going forward, um, would be the, the conflict between reason and religion. How does reason and religion play out in this, this play? What, what do you guys think of that? This idea of, of rationalism or, or rational thought and argument play out with or against religion. rational character like he doesn't judge anybody based off their religion and he like tries to help other people see why they shouldn't judge him and, mm. like why like religion doesn't define you okay yeah I think that that's certainly his way um, and he uses it seems like reason seems to be his way of uh, communicating across religions right it's almost as if um, intra-religious discussion well, it really doesn't happen in this play. As, you know, we talked about before, this play isn't about the natures of these religions. Or, you know, there's not like a comparative religious study, right? It's, it's really about the spaces between different groups, different parties, and how they, they come across. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say this play is, is anti-religious because I don't think anybody is condemning religion but I think it looks for a, a means of extending or expanding spaces between religion um, but I also do think the ambiguity is, is open here that the the play between reason and religion even though this play is hopeful I mean the play ends on a positive note right it, it, it ends on a sort of as you like it note where the, the conflict it's sort of tissue paper and just sort of gets pulled away turns out everybody's just related to everybody else so we don't have to kill each other because we're all we're all just a family um the the ease with which the tension resolves uh, and also saladin just gets money turns out the, the problem in egypt wasn't a problem it's it's fine <laughs> it was we just had a we just had a boarding delay more or less uh so the the fact that this conflict or these conflicts sort of evaporate in the end of the play I think reveals that that this question or this negotiation between reason and religion if it is a negotiation uh, is is an open one right we were not necessarily coming to any broad or specific conclusions about how to how to deal with this it's simply a, a plea for, for tolerance. Um, 
but I do think there's the the deeper problem or the deeper the deeper question that that Lessing is putting forward, which is this idea of the essential person, if there is an essential person, and where does that person fit in terms of social roles, customs, and the the tradition which collects together custom. Um, in, in the Enlightenment, this discussion uh, draws out between people like David Hume and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. We talked a little bit about Rousseau before. Hume, I think, was mentioned, but, but passing. Uh, he was a Scottish philosopher of the mid to late 18th century. Um, he was uh, very famously atheistic. He was like the first Richard Dawkins, uh, and, and probably equally as annoying. Um, you know, he, he refused to believe in God. And when he was on his deathbed, he refused again to, to ever confess or, or what have you. Um, so he, he died kind of a public and committed atheist. And, um, and he did a number of other things too. I mean, that, that is not nearly all of David Hume. He was a, a very invested and, and interesting political philosopher. Um, one of, you could probably qualify him as an economist as well. But what, what Hume thought was that people are n more or less non-essential. Um, I, I think he might quibble with that, but basically he thought that social roles made the person that we are made out of these social roles. And when we compare him to good old Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who we said, you know, Rousseau was part of that cult of nature in France that, uh, especially Louis the Sixteenth, and, and if you know anything about Marie Antoinette um, and her countryside escape, estate, they were very invested in this idea of nature and returning to nature. We talked a lot about this with Triumph of Love, where they're out in nature doing natural things. And when you go back to nature, you find this authentic self. Uh, and I think there is in this play an open conflict between Hume and Rousseau, between are we made from these social roles, which in this play, religion stands in for these social roles and helps and helps uh, shape them. Because here, religion is also political. Uh, it's, it's a religious war is is religion and politics combining. Um, so Hume says, are we made from these social roles? Well, Rousseau says we have this natural, authentic self, this essential self. Um, and, you know, if we kind of return to, to nature, we can find this essential self. Um, and this essential self is, is shaping us in certain ways and is in conflict with society. And so the kind of the last question, the question I'll leave you, because I think we have like a minute left. Uh, yeah, about a minute, a little, a little more than that. Is Hume, Rousseau, both or neither? Are we simply composed of these social roles, these religious roles, um, or these roles that religious customs have given us? In, in Lessing's play, um, is there an authentic self that is, is trapped in by society? Um, is it both? Is it that, you know, that um, there is this authentic self, 
um, that is being that is in that is being violated by these customs that it has to to adhere to in order to survive in a world. I mean, we're dealing with a war, right? The, the Third Crusade is a war. Um, or is it neither Hume or Rousseau? Right? Is it um, is it that the authentic self is is nonsense? That there is no there is no authentic self, right? That it's always going to be um, that it's always going to be subject to to custom, um, and that we can't get back to nature, right? That that that's nonsense, and. With this play, I think the the answer is open because I think Lessing is not necessarily uh, he doesn't seem to be condemning religion, um, you know, necessarily. It may be a necessary evil. It may be it may be a, a good. Um, and I don't think Lessing is necessarily telling us that there is this this authentic self that needs to. I don't know, somehow return to nature or get out of custom in some way. Um, I don't even know if Lessing thinks that's possible, but it is a question I don't have an answer to. And so we'll, we'll end on that, that kind of ambiguity between the person made of social roles or um, the person who is essential and natural and um, can be freed from social roles. All right, and we, we can end there. It's 11 o'clock now. And um, if anybody has any questions, I'll, I'll stay on uh, this chat for a little while. Okay, thank you.